I'm locked in, I'm buried with the loaded bases. Look at their faces, I got them switching places. Slower than the matrix, shots you taking, I anticipate it. Yeah, I know you hate it, but facts you gotta face it. Max contract, no trade clause. Ask my agent, fly it in the angel boy. Running things just like McCoy. Many imitate, but they ain't ballin' like your boy. Many say they working hard, but they ain't working like your boy. Strong, big body, attitude like I'm on the road. Championship, champagne shower. Look at the time, it's rational hours. Championships and champagne showers. Look at the time, it's rational hours. Welcome to the Rational Hour, Ryan. On today's show, we have an NFL vet in the building. This man played 18 years in the league, earning multiple Pro Bowl, All-Pro honors. When he retired, he was the most accurate kicker in NFL history, the most field goals in NFL history, most 50-yard field goals in NFL history, current Kansas City Chiefs all-time leading scorer. Please help me welcome Miss Nick Lowry. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Great to be on here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time for coming on the show. Uh, how's life been, Nick? 18 years in the league. Uh, how has life after football been for you? Well, uh, the hardest thing for players uh, is to to make that transition to um, the life after football. And I'm really proud and uh, of the things that I'm involved with today. And really, I had sort of a seminal um, moment probably – maybe two months ago, and I, I really felt for the first time that uh, it's not a prison, but it is certainly an attitudinal shift. It's a mindset shift to when you played 18 years in the league, which only about one you know, third of 1% of the players did or, or less. Um, and so I, I love life. Uh, I went to Harvard when I finished, to, to the Kennedy School, and I became chairman of the National Fund for American Indian Education, having started something called Native Vision back in 96. And then Clinton nominated me, and then W. renominated me and testified before Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell in 2003 before the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs on problems facing Native American youth. And then again in front of Senator uh, John McCain, who was the chairman in 2005, and so life has been really rich. I mean, I've, I've now am working with an AI company called Alzheimer's Treatment Centers of America, which uh, is dedicated, and CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, is, is obviously uh, connected to cognitive uh, dysfunction, and using AI to look at not one or five or ten like typical medicine does, but thousands of influencers that create that dark path towards dementia and Alzheimer's and CTE, and then using what we call precision medicine with doctors to create much more accurate when using AI to measure constantly the success of using all of the different modalities, all of the treatments, all of the nutraceuticals, et cetera. And then on top of that, another AI company, uh, which is called Massive Blue, and we're making significant inroads in helping law enforcement in particular um, catch the bad guys in child trafficking, human trafficking, and fentanyl. We're working with um, the the Yuma sheriff, and I can't go into too many details, but let's just say that we're very excited, and I feel just, you know, very excited to be proud of my Kansas City Chiefs to have been the mayor of <laughs> of Chiefstown here uh, during the Phoenix Super Bowl. I've lived here for 26, 27 years, 
And we also have a tequila company called um, El Bandito Yankee Tequila. So we did a bunch of events here and, and in Phoenix during the week of the Super Bowl, and we have a suite at Arrowhead Stadium. So it's not like I'm divorced from the Chiefs at all. I'm going to the game tomorrow here with the Cardinals and the Chiefs and love what the Chiefs have done, the incredible leadership from Clark Hunt, who, by the way, was charting me against John Stenner. Today, they've rewritten history. <laughs> they, Ryan, they, uh, everybody thinks that I followed John Stenner. No, John Stenner played six more years after I competed against him in 1980. Uh, he was still in the heart of his career, and um, I just beat him out. I, I, Marv Levy had the courage, and I'd like to think wisdom to make the change, and and I broke every one of his records. And, uh, you know, Jan hated me for a year or two. We became good friends again. He's in the Hall of Fame. I should be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> but uh, I think part of, the, part of it is perhaps, maybe, that people just don't understand that, you know, I when we went head-to-head, I was better than Jan Stenerud. Yeah, uh, that's uh, one thing I really want to touch on. You know, Marv Levy gave you that shot back in the early 80s. Uh, Jan Stenner was an all-pro. Uh, he was one of the great kickers of his time. You know, like he was the first the dominant Fame. kicker. He was. He deserved to yeah. be in the Hall of Fame, absolutely. Yeah. Now, how much pressure did you feel, you know, filling those shoes, and, and you knew you were ready during that time to, to take over? You, you know, Ryan, I, I really believe that persistence is king. As Churchill would say, courage is king, and I think right with that is – is persistence and that the courage allows you to stick with things when it's painful when rejection is is there and, and you feel you know potentially you can go down that sense of feeling rejected and not worthy but if you stick with it you get to a place as i did after two years of being cut by uh eight teams 11 times i i was ready and i literally uh, a lot of people don't know this i actually had given up um i was a got a job with Senator Bob Packwood, uh, with the Senate Committee on um, Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee, and I was a legislative aide focused on aviation deregulation, and and um, I I thought it was over, but a guy named Jim Schaff called me up and uh, from the Chiefs, the general manager, and I was able to find him, and and uh, they gave me a $2,500 bonus, which is nothing, but for me it just meant maybe I should try one more time, and they brought me in in May so I could get used to things rather than just coming in late July. So I had almost three months uh, advance uh, notice, and I just felt, Ryan, that it was my time. I didn't feel guilty that I, you know, I felt like I can take on this guy. It's not going to be easy. I'll have to I have to outkick him every day, um, but I think that's a gift when, when people listening, when we stick with stuff long enough and stuff that, that fills us up, stuff that is part of God's unique gifts in us, um, we can get to a whole new level. And that's what happened. And I feel so blessed that I didn't give up. I feel so blessed that, you know, that if I had not called back Jim Schaff, I would have been working in the U.S. Senate and it would have been a very different life and very blessed too. But instead... I played 18 years, and when I retired, I had the most field goals in NFL history, most accurate kicker in NFL history, most 50-yard field goals in NFL history, Sports Illustrated kicker of the decade in the 80s, and number two in the 90s, even though I finished in 1997, 96, and, uh, you know, got a chance to meet wonderful people, uh, the, the Hunt family, all the players, all the teammates, Derek Thomases and Joe Montana's and you know, Duran Cherries and Albert Lewis's and 
uh, Christian Okoye's of the world, and you know, and also do a lot of stuff in the community. So, take our audience back, Nick. How does um, how did you get to Dartmouth? From you went to high school in D.C., correct? I went to a really great high school, St. Albans School, and before that, Potomac School up to ninth grade in McLean, Virginia. And St. Albans is the National Cathedral School for Boys. And Jonathan Ogden actually went there about 15 years after me. And, um, you know, it, it was a small private school, but uh, I had a great mentor, and I think that's really important, and, and uh, just looked at uh, pitching, which I was um, MVP of the baseball team as a pitcher. We were league champions. And the, the pitcher is on an island, so too is the kicker. And, and I was from the beginning, Dick Johnson, my coach and mentor and for kicking, helped me look at life as that island, being able to manage your mental state on your own personal office or island. And and so I think that's really what helped me stick with it and get better, not just physically, but as we all know, there are a lot of kickers that can kick the ball 90 yards and, and 70-yard field goals, maybe not a lot, but there are there are plenty. But it's doing it in the games, time in, year in, year out. That's that's the hard part. Ivy League, all Ivy League kicker. You didn't miss one extra point throughout your college career. With the NFL moving back the extra point, in 2015 they moved the extra point back 13 yards. Was that a yep. good decision by the NFL? Absolutely. It, I mean, it was just too automatic, and so it really wasn't a factor in the game. Um, I had the all-time record. I was 562 for 568, and two of those extra points were dropped. Uh, my holder, Bill Kenny, had a, a damaged hand. <laughs> Poor guy. And uh, but you know, so I, I'm, I had a 99% accuracy rate in extra points. I had I think 10 seasons when I didn't miss an extra point. Uh, and so it was good. And, and, and I, and Boomer Syerson, who was my teammate for two years on the Jets, he, he was like, oh, Nick Lowry's probably not happy with this rule. But then I, I thought about it. Yeah, he's right. For the first 24, 48 hours, I would have been like, oh God, more pressure on me as a kicker. But then I would have thought, you know what? I was 97% inside 33 yards, which is the highest percentage ever in the history of the NFL inside 33 yards. The average of the rest of the league was 92%. So 5% better would mean if I just did my thing, then every 20 extra points, I would miss one less, which would give us an edge. And I think that's, you know, that's the thing is you have to, as a kicker, you can make a 58-yard field goal as I did against the Redskins, but I wasn't ready about three minutes later in 1983 uh, and missed a 47 yarder. And then I got it together and, uh, kicked four field goals in that first half. And that 58 yarder is still the longest field goal in the history of the NFL in the first quarter. And so you always have to be ready for the next kick. And so it may be an extra point. It may be a field goal, but it does force you as the kicker to be always on, always ready. What are your thoughts on the current Kansas City Chief dynasty, uh, budding dynasty, um, and their latest kicker in Harrison Butker? Harrison Butker is one of the two or three best kickers in the NFL. He's got a perfect personality for it. He's humble. He's hardworking. He's mentally tough. He's had some, the one problem that he's had. He's had two. One is that he's he's had some problems on extra points. Uh, and then he also had his injury in the first game against, actually against the Cardinals last year in here in, uh, where they're playing tomorrow. Uh, and I'll be, ironically, I'll be sitting in the end zone in the fourth row 
not far from where he was kicking off and hurt his ankle, and that probably made it a little bit harder for him. But he's a, an extraordinary kicker. This team has uh, an almost unprecedented caliber of leadership led by Andy Reid, led by Clark Hunt, and led by, of course, Patrick Mahomes. Uh, and then with his – really, nobody's called him this, but Travis Kelsey is a is a second quarterback. I mean, Travis Kelsey played high school quarterback – he and uh, you cannot defend against a player like Travis because he will break off and he will be on that ESP level that you can't predict with Patrick based on how he's being covered on a play. So he'll know when to break it off, and that's what makes those two just unbelievable. And if we sign, and I hope we do, Chris Jones, and Chris Jones comes to his senses – uh, arguably, by most standards, the number one player who's voted above Aaron Donald uh, as the number one defensive player, and he made the big plays at the right time. But I hope he understands, a little bit like Tom Brady and a little bit like Patrick Mahomes. You know what? Do you really need to have $30 million? I mean, $25 million is to be part of another Super Bowl champion? I mean, is, is your ego that you have to be the best player? best paid to know that you're the best player as opposed to be part of a team that with that extra four or five million because of the salary cap, not because they don't want to pay him, gives you, let's say, one more offensive lineman when we have two new offensive tackles who are not unproven, but they haven't proven that they can be as good as what we had before. And you need to protect your quarterback, damn it. So, you know, I, I hope that I've told, I tell today as players, you're making a lot of money. Don't you dare leave a team for 15% more money or even 20% more money if you aren't if you're leaving a team that appreciates you in a system where you're successful because there's yeah. too many variables on other teams and it, he would be foolish to go to another team because he's got a defensive coordinator and a team that's you know getting poised to win another one uh, they have to stay healthy there are always challenges. Kadarius Tony, for one, has to stay tough. healthy. Yeah. It's really tough, Nick. I mean, uh, I know he's been out of camp. He's just about 30 days now. He's integral. He is the cog in that defense, man. He is the game changer, like you mentioned. And uh, sometimes you, you ask yourself, well, do guys want to win championships or do they want to secure the bag? You yeah, know, he wants that, to win the championship the of the salary. And he yeah, needs yeah, to understand. Tough, and he's man. like, you need, need to win the championship. But, you know, I, I'm sad for him. Yeah, because. No. Do you compare this situation kind of to Tariq Hill when they asked him to take a similar pay cut? Yep, I do. I do. I think your ego gets in the way in Tariq Hill. Yeah. You know, uh, he, they, you know, remember the Chiefs drafted him when he had a, you know, domestic assault charge against him. Yeah, he's wrong. And, yeah, and, yeah. and, and they, they doubled down and they gave him a chance to be, to be part of a great organization when other teams didn't. I, I think players, all of us, in life, as we get older, I have to learn to discriminate between the appetites of our ego, which is recognition, which is trophies, which is money, which is attention, versus being part of a great team and that spiritual growth. Because in the end, you'll look back and go, man, where'd that $5 million go that I made when I went to the Denver Broncos or some other team? But I didn't win, a, I didn't win another championship, and it was never the same. And by the way, when you win a championship, you win your third championship in five years, guess what? You get more money off the field, and it just everything in life is There's so much more stable and fun and 
and they may win another one after that. I mean, you can't guarantee any of that. They may not win again. But I have to say, when you've got the stability of leadership embodied by Andy Reid and and by Patrick Mahomes, uh, it's a pretty good bet. Yeah, Kansas City, I mean, Andy Reid is one of the best, you know, coaches ever to, to coach in the league. And, uh, you know, they they have that connection like Walsh to Montana. Uh, uh, just, you know, they know each other well, and they, the play calling is just incredible. Uh, what he did last year with the – not to say the receivers weren't great, but when he lost Hill, a lot of people thought, you know, Derwin James or the Chargers made some comments. A lot of people – Everybody. Thought they were Everybody off. thought it yeah. wasn't going to be the same. Yep. Yeah. Patrick went from being too predictable with basically three receivers – uh, counting Kelsey to, you know, moving around to seven, eight, nine receivers made him more unpredictable, made him harder to defense, and made him more confident, frankly, that they could do anything. I mean, let's throw in one more thing, which is the character and toughness of Patrick Mahomes. And you saw that portrayed on, on the Netflix series on quarterback uh, when he has a high ankle sprain and how many people could have done what he did, which is, A, to come back at all, B, to to win those games, and then, of course, embodied in against Cincinnati, running for the first down, 20 yards, uh, and then getting hit out of bounds at the end, which gives us a chance to kick the game-winning field goal. And then the same thing to set up the game-winning field goal in the Super Bowl, where he has about a 25-yard run or 20-yard run, you know, with his ankle. I mean, that just doesn't happen with high ankle sprains. So, uh, that's one more factor. It's hard to measure it, but you just say intangibles. There's no, arguably no quarterback in the history of the NFL, including Tom Brady, that has as many intangibles. Now, Tom Brady is just playing a machine of discipline, of uh, command of the game, and he's different, and he deserves all the credit that he's achieved. But Patrick Mahomes is a different animal. There's never been, and there may never be again, another Patrick Mahomes. Now, Brady uh, definitely is a general. Uh, a lot of people throw a little bit of dirt on his name with some of the cheating allegations when it comes to uh, the championships that the Patriots have won. One thing I want to touch on, Nick, is the, the Colts-Patriots AFC Championship in 2014. Uh, supposedly Brady had some interactions with a locker room attendant you know, letting some PSI pressure out of Yeah, yeah, I, I'll tell you about that. I mean, I, I can just tell you this is what this is. Num- the, I'll give you a couple things. Number one, absolutely, think about those those uh, locker room attendants, right? They idolize them, and he probably just said, hey, just don't make sure that the ball's not too overinflated. But here's, what, here's the reality. Anybody that's a scientist uh, of any level knows when the temperature goes down, when it's down to, what was it? 25 degrees or whatever, that ball, even though it's it's inflated in 72 degrees in the locker room, right, or in the locker room and the equipment room, but take it outside and leave it in that air for 30 minutes, that, that actual inflation level will automatically go down. That's just what happens. So if you look at what happened in the second half, right, Passed better, and he continued. Yeah. He c- continued to do well anyway. So um, it's just uh, yes. He probably told the guys. He didn't tell them to break the rules, but he probably just told them to make sure it's not too not too much. And then what happened was the guy goes into that little bathroom, takes out a little bit. He probably was doing that every single game, 
but then when you then when the temperature is 20 degrees it the the ball's inflation will automatically after 30 minutes in that cold weather go down a couple pounds pound and a half two pounds so you know if his any of his performance his performance was better wasn't just the same so it just renders it he rendered it by himself in his performance a moot point in 1990 you had the regular season finale in chicago week 17 now the week before you hyperextended your knee talk about toughness you mentioned before <laughs> how was that for you going into chicago and uh it was a short week you guys played on a saturday did you know you were going to be able to go, or how were you feeling going in, especially knowing oh, I just, was at stake in the playoffs? You know what? I just there was just no question. There was just I had to, and and so you know you just have to stay within yourself. And and uh, uh, just a funny little sidelight: uh, the night before the game, I went. We were in Chicago, and my friend Dick Schaap, the late great Dick Schaap from ABC. Uh, uh, he'd introduced me to his friend Colette May, who, who took me to a nice restaurant, and I had um, I never had escargot, and I went ahead and had escargot uh, with with um, some garlic, and uh, I just thought the next day I felt so relaxed, and it was muddy, it was cold, it was uh, overcast, it was foggy, not really foggy, but it was foggy, and Stegerberg was our quarterback, and we we kept coming short, and I had five field goals in that game, and we beat Mike Ditka and Walter Payton and the Chicago Bears, and I'm really proud of that and finished the season. That was a team record, uh, broke Stenard's record with 21 straight field goals and led the NFL in scoring. And uh, I remember DeBerg coming up to me as I came off the field after my fifth field goal saying, La Machine, La Machine. So that was his nickname <laughs> for me after that. Um, so... You know, that's what you do. You just yeah. – you, you can't let down your team. And, uh, you know, the next week we yeah. play in Miami, and and uh, you just – you've got to rest a little bit, be a little bit more careful in practice, and be ready to do what you have to do. Ready, ready to roll. Now, that's when really the Chiefs started to get to their winning ways. The 80s were kind of horrendous for the Chiefs. In 1990, uh, Marty Schottheimer gets hired. Uh, how much did things change, and uh, how was the relationship with Marty Sondheimer? Things changed immediately. You got to give credit to to Carl Peterson for being the general manager who got my, uh, you know, Marty to come. He's the same guy that got Joe Montana to come, and the same guy that drafted Derek Thomas. I mean, but you know, Marty from day one, we were with the same basic roster. A few changes, but basically from the day one of the first preseason game against the Giants. We were a different team because we were just tougher. Marty expected me and everyone to do their job, to work their butts off, and to perform on the field. And that's what he said to me. As long as you do your job, you're going to be here. And and who can not respect that? So we were a better team right out the bat. We were 8-7-1 and one that year. There were some growing pains. Um and then the next year, uh, Krishna Koye, Marty just was like, we're going to, you know, Christian led the NFL in rushing that year. And then the very word came in. And so the two of them just, just absolutely dominated two big, running. fast running backs. I'll never for, forget, Ryan, we're playing in Green Bay. And um, 
by the fourth quarter, Green Bay's defense didn't want to tackle those guys. I mean, they just they just worn them out and pounded them out. So we we arguably could have gone to the Super Bowl this that year, but it, there was a complete change. We owe it all to Marty and 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 Carl for bringing Marty in, and uh, it was such a blessing to me after being, you know, the kicker of the decade for in, in the '80s with a team that was mediocre. Uh, and games didn't really matter that much to be kicking in games that really did matter and then leading the league in scoring and being in the Pro Bowl. Suddenly, magically, even though I'd been out kicking, I'd taken, you know, the the record for accuracy to a new level. The games didn't matter, and, and so I didn't make the Pro Bowl uh, more than once, which is, you know, really disappointing and frustrating. But then you saw when we started winning, and, of course, having a better offense didn't hurt, uh, suddenly I got elected to more Pro Bowls and, um, you know, much more satisfying because you're kicking for your team. You're helping your uh, – I mean, Arrowhead Stadium was full. The fans were crazy. It was just wow. the way to end a career, you know, the right way, thanks to Marty and, and that whole change and metamorphosis in the team to a true quality team. Great, Coach. Now, Nick, after 14 years in KC – the rumor, I don't know if you can confirm this, but they asked you to take a pay cut and um, you end up going over to New York. Um, how was that transition for you? Did you know they were going to go with Lynn Elliott? Uh, Marty Schottenheimer is the first year of free agency. And it's another indication of, of unfortunately, when you've only got one newspaper in town, uh, they don't cover things uh, in depth, and so nobody ever got the true story. When I've, I've now told it several times in Kansas City years later, and, and frankly, I wish I hadn't left, but it was uh, the knuckleheads, uh, I say that affectionately, that were the original guys to evaluate, you know, how do we evaluate players so that we can keep a salary cut. Well, the kicker can't be that important. Uh, and a guy named Jerry Heaster, when the Chiefs released me, said, well, yeah, but, you know, it's about victory comes in business on the margins, and if your kicker provides that edge, it'll make a difference. Needless to say, a year later, Lynn Elliott missed all three field goals against the Colts, and everybody said if Nick Lowry had been here, we would have gone to the Super Bowl. Did that make me feel great? Um, no. It didn't because I should have been there. Um, and in the end, what had happened was Marty did not tell Carl Peterson that he'd promised Lynn Elliott all the field goals in the preseason. And I'd agreed to take a salary cut, basically saving them a, a quarter of a million bucks initially. But then if I had my usual year, I would have made pretty much the same amount of money. But then I found out I wouldn't be able to compete for my job. And a guy named Pete Carroll, very charismatic coach, he's proven himself at USC and with Seattle, Hall of Fame coach, right? And just dynamic. And and I'm thinking, okay, they're going to pay me a quarter of a million dollars more. They're excited to have me. And in the end, uh, Carl Peterson called up and, and said, Nick, I thought we had an agreement. And I said to him, and this is something that uh, for some reason the the paper in Kansas City never told this story, which is pretty sad. Um, and basically, Carl said when he heard that Marty had promised Lynn Elliott all the field goals in the preseason, he said, I hired Marty and I can fire Marty. And so he was pissed. And um, if I had had my ego in check, because this is a tale of three egos, Carl's ego, Marty's ego, and my ego, if I had been a little bit, shall we say, more enlightened um, of what really matters, I would have said, hey, 
just give me a reason to stay. And uh, that might have solved it. Um, and I went to New York and had one fun season with Pete, but then they fired him because we didn't do well at the end of the season. And how many head coaches are fired after one season? And uh, that was a huge mistake. And then they replaced him with, with Richie Kotite, who was uh, a terrible coach. And it was frustrating. Uh, and to this day, I'm, you know, honest enough to say I wish I hadn't left Kansas City. It was the worst decision for all concerned. Now, Nick, I'm going to give you a few names and just tell me what comes to mind when you hear the name. Lynn Dawson. Len Dawson, uh, Len Dawson, uh, one of the great people in the history of the National Football League, along with Joe Namath, uh, you know, a crucial figure in the history of the evolution of the AFL into the AFC and the NFL itself, absorbing the AFL, um, and just a tough, classy guy who was the same person, even though he was not happy that Jan Stenner, his friend who he'd held for for 13 seasons or close to that, um, you know, was gone. He was great. He actually, I had a show on Sirius Satellite for three years every day, five days a week, called Head Games Radio. If you look up headgamesradio.com, I've kept those interviews. And Len would come on every on Monday mornings, and we'd talk about, you know, the NFL games. He was just a classy man, tough guy, and a great natural leader. Yeah, I loved him on Inside the NFL. John Madden. John Madden, one of the great coaches in the NFL history. I, I'm not enamored of John Madden because he spent his time putting down kickers as being, you know, well, kickers, you know, they're not that tough. I'm thinking, John Madden, you're the same guy that um, couldn't ride a plane with your team. That's kind of weird. You had, to, you had to ride a bus to your team's games, but you're you're saying you're mentally tough and kickers aren't? And then on top of that, John Madden, who is, you know, a great guy, you know, in all many ways, but he never stood up for NFL players with his Madden game. And thousands of players, including myself, were never paid a dime, even though their likeness, if not their name and their number and their physical stature were on the game. So, you know, while John Madden is one of the great coaches and was a great personality, I saw a certain lack of character, at least at the end after his coaching days. He was a great announcer, but he didn't stand up for, for players that deserved to be compensated while he was making bank with the Madden game. And for that, I can't, I can't put him at the highest rung, in my opinion, because he didn't have other, other players' backs. He didn't stand up for them. So, I'm sure that'll, you know, anger some people that think he's, you know, the best. But, you know, in the end, uh, he should be measured in in addition to standing up for people other than himself. Uh, one of your teammates, Derek Thomas. One of the most ebullient, uh, effervescent players in history. Uh, just uh, one of the most physically talented guys ever. He called me Beaner because my mother was British and very proper Oxford-educated woman. And, you know, he'd go, hey, old Bean, how's your mother? And then he began to call me Beaner. But he was just, you know, he was also a client of my agent, Lee Steinberg, and he did a lot of great things in the community. 
and uh, he had a uh, program called Third Long, a literacy program, and, and uh, I, you know, he did a lot of great things, and he added that unbelievable factor, that game-changing factor. How many times he sacked John Elway, stripped him of the ball, and recovered it a couple times for a touchdown. Just an enormously talented player. And, uh, you know, when you have two or three players like the Chiefs do right now with Travis Kelsey and, and Chris Jones, we hope, and, of course, Patrick Mahomes, when you have game-changing players like that, you're never out of the game. And Derek Thomas took us to a different level. Um, Marcus Allen. Marcus Allen, maybe the greatest vision of any player I've ever seen. He and Deron Sherry, both who played, you know, six straight Pro Bowls at safety for us, even though he was not the fastest, not the strongest. And same thing with Marcus Allen. You never saw a clean hit on Marcus. He understood where the safety was, and so he'd know when to move, and he just had, even though he was not physically huge, he was incredibly tough, fast enough, of course, and incredibly intelligent on the field and a great leader. So in practice, I'd noticed with both Joe Montana and Marcus, when they came, you know, together in the 93 season in practice, Joe was always absolutely dead on target, just like a beautiful conductor of a symphony. And Marcus would take the ball and run the whole length of the field when he had the ball. And um, he just had an intensity. He always made big plays when we needed it. And he would always say to the players as a great role model, act like you've been there. You didn't see Marcus Allen spike the ball. He just handed it to the referees like, hey, let's get going so I can score another one. And that has a great impact on the players that, you know, today I joke about the Dallas Cowboys and other teams that get all excited, you know, when they play, make one great play and they celebrate in the first quarter or second quarter. You know what? Shut up. You're paid that to do that. You make the yeah. field goal, you know, I'll hold one arm up, but, you know, you've got the rest of the game. Once you've won the game, you can celebrate. And Marcus was that way. He was just focused, great natural leader, and we were lucky to have him. Um, last one, the guy I thought was really underrated, um, Albert Lewis. Albert Lewis should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, I, I'd love to go in with him. Uh, he was six foot two, uh, incredibly, he was like a cheetah. He was so... Uh, before Tariq Hill, <laughs> he was incredibly fast, fluid, probably the best punt blocker of all time. Uh, we set a record for most punt blocks since kicks blocked in the 87 season with Frank Gans as our coach, and, and Albert was a big part of that. His acceleration to the ball, his recovery speed, his athleticism, his natural balance. He was a, he was a quiet guy that just was unbelievably mentally tough and, and, and a good friend. And, um, you know, again, I look at Albert, uh, if, if Albert and I and, let's say, um, Art Still, if we had played on the Buffalo Bills, Duran Cherry, um, we would have, we'd be in the Hall of Fame already, too. You know, it's, a lot of it is just, you know, timing. And in the 80s, a lot of my, you know, those 10 years in the 80s, unfortunately, the Chiefs weren't great until, you know, Marty came at the end of the 80s. Uh, and I'm glad and, and, and blessed that it did happen when it did. It may never have happened, but Albert certainly deserves to be in, in the Hall of Fame uh, and a great friend and just a quiet, um, what I call blue flame complet- competitor, you know, just quiet, but just incredibly tough. Blue flame, I like that. It's one thing I wanted to touch on lastly is 
just please let our audience know again where they can support and follow any of your work. I love what you're doing with the Nick Lowry Foundation, the things you're doing with the youth, um, just so much within the community, within Arizona, with the homeless, anti-bullying, um, just everything that Nick Lowry's Youth Foundation stands for. Well, thank you, brother. Uh appreciate it. That's where the blessings are, you know, and that's, to me, what we do is we take our success and then we help others be more successful and find their unique and find first and then their their unique gifts and then harness them, polish them, and use that as a way to, you know, spread, if you will, God's love and God's power and God's wisdom and a sense of connection to everyone we meet. Yeah, one tip that I saw I get to touch on was you're, you're actually had teammate, uh, Russell Wilson's dad at, at Dartmouth? Yep, yep, Harry Wilson. And I, Harry Wilson, speaking of blue flames, Harry was a, a blue flame. He was on the baseball and football team with me. And um, he was an extraordinary human being. He actually founded the African-American Sports Hall of Fame, and I was his first non-African-American board member. Uh, and, uh, unfortunately, Harry died from diabetes and, uh, cancer. And I talked to, um, Russell, answered the phone, uh, two days before he died. Um, and unfortunately, Harry, I wanted to just let Harry know I loved him, knowing it was probably any day. And thank you so much for having me on there. And I hope everybody else that listened, I hope there's something in there that, uh, that connected with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Nick Lowry's, ladies and gentlemen. Rational Hour, out.